Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Now, I thought it was a perfect time to revisit a fun chat I had some time ago with the one and only Weird Al. He is everywhere right now with the kind of true biopic Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which just premiered on the Roku channel with Daniel Radcliffe in the lead. Here is my talk with Weird Al. As the story goes, he knocked on a lot of doors trying to get his first record deal. Generally, people thought he was talented and funny, but novelty music, well, they were looking for something that would last, artists with long careers. As it turns out, Weird Al Yankovic's career lasted over four decades, and he even outlived many of the one-hit wonders he parodied. Today, he's an icon of American pop culture, the coolest man with an accordion. He's getting his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame next week. He's sold over 12 million albums and spoofed the biggest artists. Being parodied by Weird Al is a badge of honor. Nirvana claimed that they didn't realize they'd made it until he'd done his parody. And almost no artists, except Prince, have said no when Weird Al's asked for permission to parody their music. Not even when they say no do they really say no. I started by asking Mr. Yankovic about a legendary story from when he asked Sir Paul McCartney about parroting a song. Paul McCartney is a terrific guy. I love him to death. He's a great sport. He's got a great sense of humor. It was just this one situation where I wanted to do a parody of uh, Live and Let Die because Guns N' Roses had a hit with it in the mm-hmm. 90s. And I, I would have to go through Paul McCartney. And, and, and my parody was going to be called Chicken Pot Pie. <laughs> Brilliant, I know, I know. <laughs> and, uh, and Paul's uh, objection was that because he was a strict vegetarian, he felt uncomfortable with using his music to do a song which ostensibly uh, encouraged the consumption of animal flesh, oh. which, which actually is a valid reason. I mean, some people just flat out say no for no good reason, but oh, I got that. And he said, if you want to change it to tofu pot pie or anything else, he'd be happy with it. And I said, well, no, it really would have to be chicken pot pie, so I'm going to move on. So he, so again, Paul was great. He's a good sport. It was that, that one thing. I've worked with Paul since then. He actually appeared in a little 3D movie that I made a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I hate to have him on the, on the list of people that <laughs> turned no, me down I because he, he wanted to make it work. <laughs> but you never could figure out another lyric that would work? <laughs> Well, the thing, the thing with the chicken pot pie song is the, the, whole, the whole chorus was chicken squawking. Right. You know, and tofu doesn't make a noise like that. Right. I remember the song. It has that sort of da-na-na, da-na-na. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, so that was kind of the whole concept, which is, you know. <laughs> right. So you are a legend for so many at this point, both artists and audience. Um, can you pinpoint a moment or an artist where it went from being 
hmm, who is this guy who's asking to make a parody song to, oh my God, we made it, Weird Al is making a parody song? Well, uh, actually, there is kind of a moment. I, I think uh, my first Michael Jackson parody really turned the key in many ways. Uh, my whole first album sort of went under the ra- radar. I think I had a very small cult following, but nobody really in the general population knew who this Weird Al guy was. Uh, but once I did my uh, Michael Jackson parody, Eat It, and it went into heavy rotation on MTV, I kind of became an overnight celebrity. I mean, once back then, MTV was so powerful that if they put you in heavy rotation, you were being seen eight times a day, and you became a public figure immediately. And, and after that, people thought, oh, it's the Eat It guy. <laughs> and uh, all the other musicians that were maybe on the fence about letting me do a parody were saying, well, if, he, if it's good enough for Michael Jackson, I guess it's good enough for me. So in many ways, that was really the turning point. So that was um, a lot of artists. It was easier for you to um, actually you know, approach them at that point. Yeah, because, I mean, they figured if, if, if they got Michael Jackson's seal of approval, um, you know, and Michael Jackson at the time was the most uh, famous person in the known universe. So <laughs> uh, if, if he put a stamp on something, it really meant a lot. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about your process. Someone like, you know, Madonna or, or who, you know, Michael Jackson even, who had long careers, they seem to have a knack for a feeling of the zeitgeist. What's big? What's the new trend? And I feel like you seem to have that too. When you pick your song choices and your artists and your style, how do you pick a song? It's hard to articulate. I mean, it helps being a fan of pop culture. I mean, I, even if it didn't fit my job description, I'd still be surfing the Internet constantly and trying to figure out what the musical trends are. And I'm just a, a fan of uh, pop culture in general. So um, I, I like to think I have a pretty good working knowledge of it, and, and that helps inform my decisions as to what would be you know, the, the best thing to poke fun at. Is there something that you hear musically when you hear a song let, or, or lyrically that this is it, this is the, this humor in this? Obviously, when I do a parody, I try to pick songs that are at the top of the charts, that are very popular, that have worked their way into the mainstream. But there, there are certain most undefinable things about songs that, that make them leap out, that, that, that make them hooky, that make them jump out at you when you hear them on the radio. And if, if there's a song like that, it's a little bit easier to sink your teeth into because you can just take that hook and, and just tweak it a little bit and make it funny. Mm-hmm. And then when you start, um, do you start with the lyrics, sort of the metric of the music or the meter of the music? Um, yeah, I mean, um, usually when I come up with an idea for a song, I will come up with a bunch of ideas uh, jokes and lines that are uh, uh, help serving the concept of the song or the gag, and then I try to fit it into the into the parameters of the song. Because when you're doing a parody, you've already got the template there. You know exactly, you know, once you've got it, your arrangement in mind, you know exactly how many lines there are, how many syllables in each line, or the emphasis is in each line. You know exactly how it's supposed to sound, and then it's more of a puzzle. It's a matter of like getting all of your ideas to fit inside that framework. Um. I mean, this may be a bit of a reach, but I was wondering, I mean, you, you were an architect to begin with, or, or that's what you studied for, and you're apparently extremely good at math. Did any of this part of your brain help you with what you're doing today? Oh, probably. I, I should say I, I never was a practicing architect, but I, I did get my degree in architecture, which I proceeded to never use. <laughs> uh, and I was good at math, but I wasn't like a prodigy. I'm, I'm good enough to help my, my, my daughter with her eight, tenth grade math homework. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's part of that analytical brain that, that helps in the songwriting process. I'm not sure what exactly, but I think it, it helps me to organize my thoughts and, and, and think logically. And, and, you know, music is very mathematical, so I, that probably was part of it as well. 
You've spent a career being incredibly funny, but very, very kind. You've always asked um, permission to use your um, artist's music, even though you really didn't have to, because I guess parody is protected by the First Amendment, but you always have. Um, But have you ever had any song that has been offensive? Well, not on purpose. Um, You know, I I try try not to... uh... To, to really hurt people's feelings or to do something that I think crosses the line. I know a lot of comedy does cross the line, and, and that's fine, but that's just not my personal taste. Uh, having said that, there's probably some, some language uh, or some words that I've used in some songs from the 80s, which have not aged very well, which would maybe not be politically correct or even kind uh, to, uh, these days. There's some words that I've used uh, which are perfectly fine and okay for a North American audience, but I found out to my horror that they were <laughs> considered slurs in other parts of the world. So, I mean, there's always, I, I've, got, I've got a ton of things which I wish I could take back or change in retrospect, but I have to live with my history. Has any artist ever been upset? with the parody, as it turned out? Uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, I, I guess, like you mentioned, I do get permission, and, and every time I've, I've gotten permission and put out uh, a parody, I've heard nothing but, but uh, um, positive things back. The artists in general seem to really, really like it. I've never heard anybody saying, gosh, you kind of missed the boat on that one, didn't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm curious about this with kindness. Um, kindness is something um, we talk about today in this day and age because it's not exactly permeating our culture <laughs> on Twitter and in the open discourse and, and, and politics. How have you managed a career not being offensive in comedy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, you know, my, what, I, what I do is just an extension of my personality. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Um... You know, people. Uh, I'm very happy to have the uh, the image of being a nice guy because you know that's <laughs> that's a nice thing to have people say about you. And I do like to think that I am a nice guy, but uh, I, I it always surprises me because I, I don't really go out of my way to be nice. Uh, I, I certainly try not to act like a jerk, which I guess maybe in Hollywood that's just enough to, <laughs> to have people think you're a nice guy. Uh, but it's um, you know, I, I, it's just the way I've always lived my life, and uh, so far it seems to be working. And tell me a little bit about um, how you have approached um, people. Say someone like Kurt Cobain. Well, how did he react when you wanted to do a parody? Kurt was great. Now, now that was every single time we get permission, it's a different scenario. And usually, it's just me telling my manager, "Hey, I like to do a parody of this song. See if you can get the rights to it." And then my manager contacts the artist representative or their manager or their publisher or whatever, and it's taken care of through other people. But this was a situation where I told my manager I wanted to do a parody of Nirvana, and my manager said, well, I've been trying for weeks. Their management's not returning phone calls. They're being very difficult. If you can get a hold of anybody in the band, see if you can talk to them directly. And that's something I, I almost never do. That's like a last, that's like a Hail Mary situation. That's like, okay, <laughs> this is my last-ditch attempt to get permission. And it just so happened that I had a, a friend uh, at the time that was on Saturday Night Live, and Nirvana was going to be performing on Saturday Night Live for the first time. 
So I said, hey, if you, if you get Kurt alone in a room, put him on the phone with me because I need to ask him a question. And that's exactly what happened. I got Kurt Cobain on the phone, and I said, hey, Kurt, it's Weird Al Yankovic, and I was wondering if I could do a, a parody of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And there's this weird pause on the end of the line. And he goes, yeah, sure. Is it going to be a song about food? <laughs> <laughs> because at the time, I was still known for Eat It and all these food songs. And I said, well, well no, actually, it's going to be a song about how nobody can understand your lyrics. And there was kind of another pause. And he goes, yeah, that's funny. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was a terrific sport. Um, I'd like to go back a little bit. And, and how did the accordion become your instrument? Well, it wasn't a calculated thing. I mean, uh, when I was six or seven years old, my parents had the wisdom to <laughs> decide to give me accordion lessons for some reason. And, uh, Do you know I took why lessons they for... chose the accordion? You know, I, I don't myself. know. I would never think of the accordion. Yeah, I was a child of the 60s. I guess it, I, I, I'd like to say it wasn't as unhip then as it came to be, but I think it was probably still pretty unhip. <laughs> back then. Uh, and and uh, my name, Yankovic, it was sort of famous in the polka community because there was another famous Yankovic, Frankie Yankovic, who was known as America's Polka King. And uh, we had a bunch of his old 78 RPM records in the attic. And, and uh, I guess they kind of figured, oh, since our name is Yankovic, we should, you know, go with tradition and have little Alfred learn to play the accordion. And also, I think they had some kind of twisted, convoluted logic, like, oh, if you play the accordion, you'll never be lonely, or a one-man band, you'll be the life of any party. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure why. In retrospect, it's even though it seems like a really out-of-the-box choice, I, I, I kind of owe it to them for making that decision, because I don't know if I'd even have a career if I learned a conventional instrument like a guitar, uh, because uh, the first attention I ever got from my music was from the disc jockey, Dr. Domeno, who said he heard my homemade tape in the mail and thought, you know, this teenager's playing an accordion and thinking he's cool, and there's something really novel about that. I mean, my material wasn't that great or that funny, but if I was playing the guitar, he, he wouldn't have given it a second thought, but he thought, oh, right. this kid's got an accordion, there's something going on here. We talk about you, your songwriting and your songs, but something that really also has made you such a star is your actual video work. Um, I'm wondering if, if the digital age is, is good to you, because it seems like it would be a pretty good transition with the web and the internet, considering how good you are at making videos. It is. I mean, the internet's been kind of a double-edged sword. I think... Um... It's been more good than bad for me. I mean, the the uh, the, the rampant uh, sharing of of, of music, uh, uh, illegally or otherwise, has not done wonders for the health of the music industry. But I mean, the digital distribution has been great for me in terms of getting my material out, for being timely, uh, for allowing people to stalk me on the road. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it's 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 just nice to be able to be more in t contact with your fans and give them sort of the immediate gratification of, of getting new material out there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons about, you know, how the Internet's affected the music industry, but I like to look at the positive. Mm -hmm. And what about the music? I mean, you're one of, um, one of the great things about your career is that you, you pretty, you've even sort of outlived some of the, the bands that you've parodied <laughs> who didn't have much a long career. But I'm wondering how you've seen the music industry change. I mean, for me as a journalist, I've seen a lot of changes is how you're allowed to access to, you know, all the publicity, all the big circus around artists and things. How, how, how have you seen changes? Uh, I think the biggest change has been in distribution. I mean, obviously the actual music has slowly changed over the last few decades as well, but the, the most, uh, 
prominent changes just been on the way that people in, enjoy and and purchase uh, or otherwise <laughs> their, their 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 music. You know the uh, physical the, the whole concept of physically owning music uh, seems to seriously be waning. Uh, a lot more people are into streaming services um, or having their music in the cloud. Um, you know, I, I remember when I got my first CD in the early 80s, I thought, oh, it's the wave of the future. It's, you know, mm-hmm. and now CDs are, are really considered old hat. And kids will look, <laughs> look down at you like, oh, you got a CD? Okay, <laughs> Grandma. You know, it's, it's just funny the way that, you know, the technology has been changing faster than anything else. And, and uh, I'm not even sure. I think in the five years from now, we'll just have all the music in the world just implanted on a chip in our brains. Right, right. We'll just choose by pressing our arm somewhere. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of approaching artists, I mean, do you feel that there's sort of a harder um, gatekeeping um, or just or are people just as happy to let you parody their work and work with them, so to speak? I've had a pretty good track record over the years. Um, I mean, I, I haven't uh, been approaching anybody lately. I, I've kind of uh, slowed down a little bit since uh, the last album. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, for the last 10, 20 years, uh, I've had pretty good luck with artists. It was just really in the beginning of my career, uh, and especially pre-Michael Jackson, where it was uh, an uphill battle because nobody knew who this Weird Al guy was, and uh, it was really hard to get my foot in the door. But now that I've got a track record, uh, a lot of artists look at it as a badge of honor, like, you know, forget how many gold records and Grammys you've got. Where's your Weird Al parody? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> is there <laughs> anyone that has been that is your holy grail that, that, that you've wanted to do, um, or either they haven't wanted to, or it's just too difficult for some reason? You know, um, there's nobody that comes to mind. I will say that there are a number of major artists over the years that for one reason or, no, or another have slipped between the cracks, and, and usually because um, I didn't have a, uh, a strong enough idea, or maybe their singles didn't come out at the right time. There's a number of reasons why it may not have worked, but uh, I, I'm going to get around to everybody eventually, so they'll have to just you know take a number. <laughs> you have some time left. Um, what do you think is the future sort of of novelty music? Who's gonna? Is will anyone be able to take your mantle? <laughs> well, there are a lot of people doing comedy music. Um, my contemporaries would be people like The Lonely Island and Tenacious D, A Flight of the Concords, um, uh, Reggie Watts, Bo Burnham. There are a lot of people out there that are doing funny music uh, and doing it very well. Uh, there are 10 million people on YouTube that are doing funny music. Uh, a lot of them not so well, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's a, it's a big market. Uh, and there are, there are younger people coming up all the time that uh, certainly... Uh, are showing a lot of promise. So um, it, it's it's nice that uh, I, I kind of feel like we're in a bit of a renaissance or a golden age of uh, of comedy music. When I first started out in the 80s, I kind of felt like I was in a vacuum. I kind of had the whole field to myself, which was, I guess, good in a way because it made me stand out, but it was kind of lonely. And now it feels like there are a lot of people that are that are embracing this kind of material. Right, which must have something to do with the Internet, of course, with everyone making their own things and, and going viral. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, back back when I started out, going viral just meant that some radio station, you know, bootlegged a copy of your song and, and they were playing it on their morning show. And, and you know, now nowadays you can uh, become Internet famous literally, you know, you know, in a few hours. Uh, it's, it's just so much more immediate, uh, which for novelty in, uh, in particular, uh, that it's critical. So much novelty music is topical, so having this kind of, you know, digital uh, highway it certainly makes it easier to, to get, get your stuff out there.
Mr. Yankovic, thank you so much for taking your time with me. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.